Today's reading is from James 5, 1 through 8. Get ready. Hear the word of the Lord. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. I'm Tom Nelson, and I am delighted to be with you today. You all feel rested with that extra hour of sleep, right? Isn't that awesome? Uh, But it is really good to be with you, and on behalf of our entire uh, Christ Community family across our campuses, good morning. Welcome. Uh, We are glad to be a part of a much larger family, and uh, it's a delight for me to be with you. God is doing such a wonderful work in our downtown campus, and your staff team are awesome, aren't they? Uh, Gabe and Allie, again, awesome leadership, so it's great to be with you. So That's a good sign, Gabe. I mean, you know, you're awesome. So uh, Kansas City native and resident Scott Tucker, you may know that name. You might remember that name. He became a household name across the nation when Netflix featured him in 2018 on the show Dirty Money. Uh, Scott Tucker, um, well, he featured an online business. He founded it. And to give you an idea, uh, he circumvented the laws of payday loans and usury by aligning his life and business plan with Native Americans who created this racketeering idea with obscene interest rates on the backs of the most vulnerable people in our country. To give you an an example, from June 2008 to June uh, 2013, get this, his company, okay, AMG Services, which was located in Kansas City, generated $3.5 billion in revenue and uh, built 4.5 million Americans who are living paycheck to paycheck to fund his opulent lifestyle. A massive mansion here in Kansas City. He also was really into race cars, so he had a whole group of million-dollar race cars. His ill-gotten gains got him in trouble, finally, Uh, and he was convicted of racketeering and is presently spending 16 years in federal prison. Now, why do I share that? Well, hopefully none of us here, I trust, will go off the sort of ethical guardrails like that, nor I trust you're not likely to be featured on a national documentary for your fraud or end up in federal prison. I pray you don't, okay? But I think his story is a good one for us to begin this message because... 
we all have the temptation, don't we, to take advantage of others, whether it's financially or socially or power. We have this Scott Tucker within us. We all have this amazing capacity, or maybe not so amazing, when money and wealth gets its tight grip on us. And it can be very damaging to us personally and to those around us. I have to say that in my own life and as I've looked at life over time and cultures and history, it seems to me that seductive and deceptive power of material wealth may well be the greatest peril you and I ever face in life. I don't think that's an exaggeration. See, the challenge is it's not how much material wealth we have. The grave peril is how much of what we have has us. And the inconvenient truth that James is going to unpack for us is regardless of our economic status, if we don't get hold of wealth, it will get hold of us. And ironically, having much of that, we find our lives empty and yet impoverished. So what is it about material wealth that can be so very perilous to you and me? Now, you know, New Testament writer James addresses this question hard on, doesn't he? Just wham, right there. And if you have a Bible, I hope you do, electronic or paper, turn with me to James in the New Testament, chapter 5. Now, as a church family across our campuses, we are exploring this very down-to-earth New Testament book. And we've entitled this series, Real Faith, which I think is exactly right, because James speaks to us across the terrain of time 2,000 years ago in a very timely way about how real faith touches the rugged road of everyday life. You know, there's something unique about James, I think, is that we read him, but he reads us in a powerful way. And we sometimes want to squirm, don't we? Okay. So this morning's text, James speaks about the real idea of faith, real faith, and how it radically transforms our economic life. That real faith has this powerful way to release money and materials grip on us, its tenacious grip. So here in the opening verses of chapter 5, what you will notice, which you've already experienced, and I appreciate this commentary before the scripture was read, you, you had this sense of raw, visceral rhetoric. It's raw, it's intense, and it's visceral. And it addresses the misuse of money and material wealth. So James highlights for us this morning, following the text, three perils of the misuse of wealth. And this is how the text goes. Wealth can ruin us, corrupt us, and deceive us. So if you're following along and sort of arranging the thought of your mind as James unpacks it, wealth ruins us, it can corrupt us, and it can deceive us, okay? It can do all three of those. So look with me at verse 1 and 3. Let me reread this again. And again, it's intense. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Now, whether you've read the Bible much or uh, not very much at all, this is seriously intense, right? It's almost preachy. It's like you feel there's a self-righteous edge. But that's not the original language. That's not 2,000 years ago. It is intense, but it's meant to be that. So if we give a little bit of a literary and biblical backdrop, we can understand what James is doing, okay? From a literary and rhetorical standpoint. We need to have a little bit of history here. So as spokespersons for God, 
the Old Testament prophets, again in the Old Testament, spoke out boldly against injustice. Uh, not only to God's covenant people, but to the nations around God's covenant people, right? That it disregarded God. So this is James' literary posture, like an Old Testament prophet. This is the language, so keep that in mind. It's the same rhetorical posture. And James, and hear this carefully, otherwise we misunderstand this text, James is primarily speaking about very wealthy first century landowners who did not honor or fear or worship God or have any respect of anyone else around them. Now, uh, some of you may be economists, but you need to understand first century economy and the economics here, otherwise we miss the text. In the first century, the economic life of, of the people was deeply tied to an agrarian context. In other words, wealth was created only by land, a finite amount of land. This is called by economists a zero-sum economy. And it's very different than the modern economy. What do I mean? The modern economy is not just tied to agrarian realities. It is dynamic. Wealth is created in many ways. But in the first century, it was static. In other words, think of a fixed pie. By definition, by necessity, which James is speaking to, when someone had something, the other person had less, by definition. That's not true today, okay? Because wealth is dynamic, and you know that. It's more than just the land or whatever. We create it through information and all kinds of things. So we have to understand that. And without land, right, if you, if you own land, you are wealthy and powerful in the economy. Without land, you are incredibly vulnerable. You were vulnerable and powerless, and there were no government safety nets for you. So picture what it must have been like if you didn't own land in the first century. Okay, that's where James is talking. Now imagine this great differential between power, between landowners and workers. No unions, right? Nothing like that. And what happened often, not in every case, but often because of how human nature tends to work, right, is there is this incredible exploitation that takes place. These landowners are taking advantage of the less powerful, and they're milking it for all it's worth. That's the idea. So many of the readers that in the first century that James is writing to have come to Messiah Jesus as mainly Jewish believers. Most of them were economically vulnerable. They weren't the wealthy landowners. And they were experiencing this economic exploitation in their daily lives and in their community. It was normal fare, tragic as it is. So Jesus, or James, sorry, James reminds these followers of Jesus that God is not asleep. God is aware of the economic injustice. God cares about this greatly, and he cares for your plight, and he's keeping score. Divine judgment will one day come for the perpetrators of economic injustice. Okay, this is where he's going. You follow me so far so we can enter this text better? So James's hard-hitting words are a warning, clearly to these landowners who don't fear God at all or care for their community, but it is also a warning for us as followers of Jesus, regardless of our economic status. Because material wealth and money as a store of value is not intrinsically bad, quite the contrary. It can be used for great good, don't miss that. But it does bring with it some very dangerous potential perils as well. And James wants us to see that, that wealth can bring ruin. So here in verses 2 and 3, notice the text, James addresses three first century forms of material wealth. We call this in economics stores of value. So here in verses 2 and 3, 
you'll notice he mentions farm produce, that was a means of wealth, fine clothing, and precious metals. Okay, these are the three main uh, stores of value and wealth. In the first century economy, farm produce, think of that, fine fabrics, gold and silver were seen as having enduring value. Think of it like today. Uh, it could be real estate or a diversified investment portfolio or a 401k. This is the idea here. So James says to these wealthy landowners, hey, these things you're storing up, thinking they are of great enduring value, are actually losing value. Your farm produce hoarded up and stored in those warehouses is rotting. Your fine fabrics, which is a really main means of, of wealth and bartering in the ancient world, is being eaten by moths as you hoard it. And your precious metals are corroding away. Why? Your hoarded wealth is being ruined, and it's ruining you. That's the idea. And notice this intense phrase. It's designed to grab you. I mean, when you hear it, eating your flesh like fire. That's a pretty gross look, right? So your material wealth will not only be worthless, he says one day, as it rot rots and corrodes away as you hoard it, on the last day, the day of God's judgment, you're going to be in a heap of trouble. That's the idea. Because you have not put your treasure in loving God and your neighbor, but in loving material things that are eroding away. So we know James, who most likely, almost certainly, is the younger brother of Jesus, one of his brothers. And it reflects Jesus' teaching here. Surprise, surprise, right? In Jesus' most famous sermon, some of you know that, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses this almost with the same language about the perils or potential perils of material wealth. Jesus says, when wealth and money are treasured too much, and he says this, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust, you hear that? Moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now notice, Jesus echoes this, but he adds something else as a danger when you put your trust in wealth, when you hoard it, when you hold on to it and indulge in it. You can have it taken away. There are thieves. Now, this is very true today, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, there, there are all kinds of thieves and a lot of internet hackers. For example, recently, just two weeks ago, um, I every Friday or so, I, I look at sort of our bank account, right, or other things that we have, you know, online, and uh, I'm looking, and all of a sudden, I'm noticing, man, our balance is low, which creates a little concern for us, right? I thought, what happened to our balance? So I look a little bit cl closer, and I can see these entries that are electronic debits that I had no idea, and they're called Robin Hood. Somebody from Robin Hood which is fascinating. So Liz and I run to the bank, literally, this, uh, this is the entries, run to the bank and there goes, oh my goodness, this has been happening across our bank. And it was a lot of money they took out in four days. And I didn't know, right? So it's just a, such a reminder, and thankfully the bank, they have you know, fraud investigation and we're going to get paid back. But just like that, the money we worked hard for, the money we had for other things like food and whatever, was gone just like that in four days. And it's just such a reminder. This is a picture like how our wealth and money can be gone just like that. Something we've worked so hard for. 
and worked hard and accumulated. And this is what the New Testament is reminding us in the first century economy. We can't make money and wealth our ultimate treasure. Now, again, hear me carefully. If we understand all of Scripture from creation, we have to have a proper balance here. It's not that money or material wealth is intrinsically wrong or bad. You hear me? Okay? That's true from Scripture. But when material wealth gets too much of a grip on us, it can deeply impoverish our hearts and souls and hurt our brother or sister. Material wealth can bankrupt us, literally and spiritually. And Jesus drives this point home, and he tells a story. You remember the story? It's one of the few places he calls somebody a fool. It's called the parable of the rich fool. It's a guy, that wealthy landowner in the first century, that has a massive amount of crops and keeps building bigger and bigger barns to store it rather than to share it, right? So he thinks he has it all made, and he indulges, has no picture of God, no responsibility to his community. And the interesting is Jesus says, this is the ultimate fool if I've ever seen one. Someone who has so much but is so broke. And that very night, he died. That very night. Surrounded by all these barns. And God says in the story, Jesus says, he will stand before God to give an account. The story of Jesus and James here reminds us of the peril of hoarding what we have been entrusted with. That getting hold of wealth means we don't hoard it. And we must keep in mind that the Bible teaches, that, teaches us that God owns everything, including our own lives, every breath we breathe. And that all of us, regardless of our financial status, is account- accountable stewards to everything we've been entrusted with. And let's just be very transparent. Okay, can we do that? Compared to the rest of the globe, everyone in here <laughs> who has a latte on, on Monday morning, which is a good thing, is wealthy by world standards. The tendency is we think the rich are somebody that has more than us. That's how we all operate, right? I'm there. Like somebody else is really rich, I'm not. But all of us are really wealthy materially compared to world standards. And what happens is we tend to think because we have it that we can do anything we want with it. And Jesus' warning to each of us is regardless of our financial status. Each of us, as yoked apprentices of Jesus, are invited, regardless of our financial status, to be stewards of everything we've been given. And as stewards of money and wealth, we are wise to address this first by the practice of the discipline, the spiritual discipline of simplicity. Now, if one dot life is focusing on this right now, so please join in on that across our church family. It's been awesome. And one of the ways wealth can rob and ruin us is convincing us, right, What we want is what we need. How much stuff do we make? It's an important question. Not that stuff is intrinsically bad, but how much do we need? Can we give more away of what we have? Or not maybe buy so much in the first place? Where are we placing our security? Our checkbook, our investment portfolios, our debit cards, all of that tells us where our security is. So the first peril James tells us right off the block is that wealth can ruin us. But notice where he goes next, which is really the heart, literally, of the text, and that's verse 4, and that wealth can corrupt us. Wealth can corrupt us. Notice the language. Behold the wages, verse 4, 
of the laborers who mowed your fields, which had you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now, James, like the Old Testament prophets, strongly counts, calls out the evil of economic injustice. And you'll notice this comes from Genesis 4, that God hears the cries of that. He gives an echoing of economic fraud and exploitation on the level of neighbors. And he'll allude to this later in the text. So the egregious nature of, of financial corruption and economic exploitation gets right to the heart of God. In the Old Testament books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, we are told that daily or workers were to be paid wages every day in the first century or in ancient economy. To withhold wages on a daily basis for workers was viewed by extra-biblical writing by Jewish writers as equivalent with murder. Heinous. Why? Because the very provision of their family, right, dependent on them eating if they weren't paid every day. So this is what's going on in the text. Notice the word fraud. That's a good translation of the Greek. It is fraudulent. And the scriptures, again, teach God is not against profit or business. Quite the contrary. In fact, in Proverbs 31, the woman, the businesswoman, uh, who makes a profit and cares for a family and the poor with her resources is viewed as the epitome of wisdom, a businesswoman. Again, who cares for a family and cares for the poor. This we must not miss. Now, God created us to work clearly, and he created us in an economic context of exchange, value exchange. God is, however, against economic injustice. And here in James 5, very clear, these wealthy landowners have the capacity to pay their workers every day, but they are refusing to do it. And they are stealing their laborers' pay to fund their indulgent lifestyles. This is why James is coming so down so hard. These landowners look down on their workers clearly, and that's part of economic injustice. They devalue fellow image bearers and steal their dignity with economic exploitation. They prevent them from generating wealth and income, and they perpetuate inequalities. This is what this kind of economic injustice does. But notice in the text that this injustice has not been, been missed by God. God is not asleep on this one. And G, uh, James uses the language. Fascinating, isn't it? Notice the text that the Lord of hosts, this word Lord of hosts, captures God's omnipotence, his incredible power. And James is saying to those who abuse others economically, particularly these wealthy landowners, if you do economic injustice, you're going against an all-powerful God, and you don't want to do that. You're outmatched. And in verses 7 through 8, James reminds his readers who are feeling the brunt of this economic injustice to be patient. Why? Because divine judgment is coming for those who engage in economic injustice and exploitation. That's powerful. And James reminds us that getting hold of wealth before it gets hold of us means we are just and fair with our wealth and material resources. In our book, The Economics of Neighborly Love, which I want to encourage you to read if you haven't, we focus on the compelling truth that loving our neighbors has incredible economic implications. We unpack it theologically and practically that we need to have compassion toward others, also help others build economic capacity and promote economic opportunity. So again, one of the applications 
I want to encourage you, if you want to read more and have more understanding here, to perhaps pick up this book and read it. The book will help you think of ways we can love our neighbor by deploying our money and material wealth in just ways and serve the common good. How we can come alongside others, those who are under-resourced, and build uh, community and build economic capacity and create access and job opportunities and network opportunities, access to capital. Christ means deeply committed to this across our city and entrepreneurial activities. Our national partnership with Made to Flourish now has over 4,000 pastors and churches around the country working on this and bringing economic well-being and neighborly love, and we are all a part of this movement. James would say amen and keep cheering us on. Right now, I have to tell you, some retired business leaders in one of our campus, they met with me recently, leaders in our city uh, are exploring how better to address the liquidity issue that payday loans abuses for those who are living paycheck to paycheck. They're trying to create a way for people who are vulnerable to have access to capital without abuse. They haven't got it all done yet, but they are deeply committed to this. As we better connect Sunday to Monday, we want to more fully press into whole life discipleship, just like Christ King as well. And many of our congregational members, as they're more convicted by Scripture and, ju- and Jesus' heart for money and wealth, are rethinking their investment choices. Right? They're looking for investment vehicles that not only eliminate companies that do bad things for the common good, but also looking for investing in companies that intentionally do good things. This is the next wave of proper investment. And from our inception, Christ's community has been serving many, many under-resourced areas of our city. I could go on and on here. It's a deep commitment we have across our city. The Hope Center, Crystal Ray, for example, um, we deal with immediate needs, but also entrepreneurial activity and health education, mental and physical health, as we build economic capacity for those in our city that are under-resourced. Another way of deploying material wealth justly is supporting entrepreneurial efforts that empower indigenous leaders within under-resourced communities. We want to cultivate jobs and build wealth in communities. One way, just one way, there are many we're doing this at Christ Community, that you've been involved in is the work with Mission Adelante. I'm so excited about this. When Mission Adelante was seeking to start Adelante Thrift, some of you have been involved with this. And Christ Community and some other churches, a handful of other churches, provided the startup capital for this wonderful work. And the desire is to create jobs in that community, cultivate leaders in their own business community, and provide quality and uh, gently used products for the community. Churches and other folks are working here, and it's taken some time, but I'm so encouraged that we are now seeing self-sustaining efforts in this wonderful work of God. It's a great picture uh, of what God is doing, and I'm so thrilled by that. It's often said that just uses of wealth are not merely a generous handout, but an empowering hand up. But it is not just economic realities. What's most needed in human realities is not just economic well-being, it's relational well-being. The greatest impoverishment is relational impoverishment. And part of our role of helping nourish and encourage economic justice is to build deep relationships with others throughout our city. This is vitally important. So James says first, Three perils. The first peril of wealth is it can ruin us. Second peril is it can corrupt us. But notice where James goes that wealth, material wealth, can deceive us. Uh, He probably says the hardest thing of the whole text in verse 5. 
He says, you have lived on the earth in luxury, in self-indulgence. Now notice the imagery he gives us. As a farm boy, this is amazing. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. (laughs) Now, if you don't have an agrarian background, I mean, we're in Kansas and Kansas City, right? I mean, like, there's a lot of cattle and stuff like this. But in agrarian worlds, you fatten up your animals before you slaughter them. They have no idea what's coming, right? They're out in the field gorging themselves, and the next day they're dead. That's the picture of these wealthy landowners. Now, notice that they are living in luxury, Amazing luxury and personal indulgence while their workers are not being paid and literally on the edge of starvation. That's how egregious the injustice is. So what he's describing is that wealth, material wealth, can have an incredible deceptive impact on our lives. It can deceive us on our time horizon, the brevity of our life, deceive us in the needs of others, in our own spiritual impoverishment. It can deceive us into prideful self-importance and perilous and false sense of security. Wealth can be drawn just like that. Wealth can isolate it and does isolate us from others who are needy and can make us callous to the needs of others who are less resourced. This is very true. It's part of the peril of wealth. And let's face it, all of us, we're all wealthy here. (laughs) Isn't it true that our want of stuff and want more stuff is never satisfied. Isn't that true? True in my life. I can always think of more stuff I'd want or need. And isn't it true in your life? I know it's true in mine, so maybe you're more spiritual than me. We can rationalize to ourselves and to our families or our friends almost any money decision we want to make. Isn't that true? I mean, we're really brilliant at rationalization of our expenditures. Or we can simply be impulsive with what we have and just do what we please. And we can deceive ourselves into thinking because we have it, because we possess it, we can do anything we want with it. This is the deceptive nature of thinking we own it, that we deserve it, we've caused it. We can do anything we want with it rather than being a steward of it. So James says this, if we don't get a hold of wealth, It'll get a hold of us. How do we get a better grip on money and wealth instead of getting its tight grip on us? It means that we are generous with it. Let me just say, you don't know me well, many of you, uh, and I hope to meet you afterwards. This message and our message on money, Jesus talks a lot about it, James talks about it, not because I want something from you, but what I want for you. And generosity is key here. Generosity uniquely opens our hearts and hands to release material wealth's grip on us, all of us. And generosity is the best antidote to greed, and greed is seldom a sin we'd ever talk about in the church, but all of us struggle with it. And pursuing a lifestyle, a daily lifestyle of generosity, of time, talent, and treasure, releases the stranglehold of greed on us. Now think with me for a moment, would you? How tight is the grip of greed in your life? Be honest. How tight is it in my life right now? Take inventory regarding what you do with your money this week. Look at it. Or your wealth, your checkbook, your credit card, your debit card, your investments. What is it saying to you? It's the best way to get objective feedback about where your heart is, where my heart is. It has been rightly said, Albert Schweitzer said this, 
brilliant philanthropist, said if you own something or if you have something you cannot give away, you don't own it, it owns you. And I think that's true for all of us. Brilliant Jesus who gave his own body for us. He was his wealth, his whole life, his shed blood for our sins. Said it this way, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And as apprentice of Jesus, one of the most distinct marks of your spiritual formation and my spiritual formation and my maturity is our continual generosity, our open heart and open hand to others. Now, you may have heard of this person, whether you've been in church a long time or not, but through church history, he has been described as St. Martin. Now, there's a story about St. Martin. His name was Martin. He was a tourist from Tours. He grew up in the 4th century. As a young man, he didn't really have a lot to do with faith, but he served in the military. And in that time, he became convinced about the Christian faith and embraced Jesus. As a military guy, he traveled across the Roman Empire. And the story is told that Martin, in the midst of one of the harshest winters, he's riding on horseback with a group of his troops, is ready to approach a city in France, right by the gates. And as he's about to go through the gates, there's a beggar on the right-hand side. Remember, it's a very harsh winter. The wind is blowing, the snow is coming down, and the beggar is next to the gate, ill-clothed, facing exposure, and most likely death. Martin gets off his horse, pulls out his big sword, pulls off his big cloak that kept him warm in the cold, and cuts his cloak in half. Takes that half of the cloak and wraps it around this beggar's shivering body. And goes into the city. That night he has a dream. And in the dream, he sees Jesus. wearing a portion of the cloak he had given away. And Martin hears Jesus saying to the host of angels around Jesus, Wow, Martin told me that it was over. It's such a great picture of a generous life. Generosity honors Christ in ways none of us until eternity will ever know. And it unleashes the most amazing joy in our lives. And what I've found in my experience, and I've lived a little bit of time, is when I encounter joyful people, most often I find out later they are very generous people. Generosity not only unleashes joy, it not only honors Jesus in ways we would never imagine when we serve and care for others, but it protects us from one of the greatest perils of greed, indulgence, and poor financial stewardship that God gives us. Friends, generosity is a mindset. It is the right ordering of our heart loves, and it's a matter of spiritual obedience. And we are never too young or too old as apprentices of Jesus to embrace a lifestyle of generosity. The Bible teaches us 
But the primary focus of financial generosity is the household of God, and that's the local church we are part of. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, who is a pastor, by the way, don't miss that, of the first century church at Ephesus. The primary focus of the New Testament is the local church. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul beautifully paints this picture of generosity. And these are the words of 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. Listen to this beautiful picture. As for the rich in this present age, that's each one of us, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. James, loving but yet sober warning is for each one of us here today how we respond to the truth of God's word. Because if we don't get a hold of God, it will get a hold of us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, it speaks to where we all are. And I thank you that it's filled with grace and truth. So, Father, may we treasure what you treasure and teach us to steward well all that you've given to us for the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. In Jesus' name, amen.